There was trouble in the north, and there was people being killed and shot right, left and centre. And the Quinn group worked their way through all of that and never had any trouble. And for them to come in and do what they'd done, I think it was absolutely disgraceful, and I believe that the last day I take a breath. The rise and fall of Sean Quinn has all the characteristics of a Shakespearean drama or Greek tragedy. The very thing that made him so successful, his confidence and single-mindedness, ended up being his undoing. The flaws are that there's an unwillingness to acknowledge the full consequences of his own actions, and that's the great flaw of the man, I think. A new three-part documentary by journalist and filmmaker Trevor Burney features Sean Quinn himself, a man who appears to be consumed by feelings of betrayal and injustice. Contributors include Irish Times journalists Simon Carswell and Fintan O'Toole, as well as the former IBRC chairman Alan Dukes. Border people have it in their blood. They are living in, in communities that have you know, a long history of violence of different kinds. This is In the News from the Irish Times. I'm Aideen Finnegan. Today, I talked to Trevor and to my colleague Simon Carswell about Sean Quinn, the making of the documentary and the questions that remain unanswered. Trevor Burney is an Emmy-nominated producer, director and journalist. He produced, directed and contributed to Quinn Country, the three-part series chronicling the rise and fall of Sean Quinn and his business empire. He also has written a book called Quinn, which is out now. Trevor, you're very welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you, Aidan. It's good to be joining you. And Simon Carswell is public affairs editor for the Irish Times and author of Anglo Republic, Inside the Bank That Broke Ireland. Thanks for joining us, Simon. Thanks, Aidan. Trevor, I'll start with you just about the the three episodes of your documentary. They cover the stages of Quinn's life, you know, his remarkable rise, this big dramatic fall, and then the aftermath of that fall and the struggle to retain and reassert control over his former business empire. What did you think of Sean Quinn before you made the documentary? And has your view changed after spending so much time with him? Well, I grew up in Enniskillen and Fermanagh in the 80s and 90s. And uh, at that time, Sean Quinn was something of a mythical character somebody who was out there at the border doing amazing things. And even if you drive from Enniskillen to Belfast, uh, you cut through um, the Clocker Valley. And in the Clocker Valley, you can see the kind of 20, 25 miles to the horizon. And you could see Sean Quinn's factories. So, you know, you, you were only aware that Quinn was absolutely a major figure in the area, but not somebody you ever met, not somebody you ever had any personal dealings with. I worked in the local newspaper, The Impartial Reporter. You know, Sean Quinn was never given interviews. You were never going to interview Sean Quinn. Nobody was ever speaking to Sean Quinn. He had this sort of omnipresence in Fermanagh, but yet you never really knew him. And now that's a very different experience, I now know, to those who live in Ballyconnell and Derrylin and Swanland Bar. He was very real and very around and very very visible and people could see him in the bars and the restaurants and the cafes and they knew him and they knew it. And I think now having spent time with him, I think he really enjoyed that. I think that Sean Quinn drew a huge amount of self-esteem from the fact that not just one individual, but maybe a husband and wife and their children all worked for him. And, you know, that he was providing employment, providing opportunities. His vision was creating wealth and creating a, a real sense of confidence in that border area. Uh, having spent all that time with him, I think that there is 
uh, many aspects to Sean Quinn's character. And of course, like all of us, he's a flawed character. And I think that uh, having spent with him, there is a real deep burning sense of injustice. You know, I think that if you open your curtains in your bedroom every morning and you look out at everything you built over 30 years and lost, you know, it's not really going to help your recuperation or uh, your mental health in, in, in terms of trying to get over what you believe you suffered uh, at the hands of others. So, I mean, I think that Sean is absolutely still transfixed with the most minute elements of uh, what happened to him in the last 15 years. And uh, I think that mythical status that he, he created is largely gone. And I think that that's something that really affects him as well. Because you spent so much time with them and you obviously formed a relationship with them because you were able to draw his story out. You know, was it difficult asking the difficult questions? Like, how did you how did you work that juggle? I mean, Sean Quinn knew who was getting into bed with when I appeared at his home in September 2018. You know, I, I'd actually just been arrested the previous month. Uh, and I do think that that had a factor. I do think that was a factor and I do think it played in. We had made a documentary called No Stone Unturned and the police had, uh, had arrested myself and a colleague in relation to breach of national security uh, in, in the UK. And I think that uh, Quinn was kind of attracted to that, you know, that he was with somebody who wasn't going to, you know, uh, back down. He, he have to be absolutely fair to him. He, he said, listen, you can ask me anything and I'll answer any question. I, I have nothing's off the table. Nothing's off the record. Everything's on the record. I'm quite happy to. So he was, he was saying that, you know, all I want to do is really get my story out. So at that stage, I really didn't know exactly who our partners were going to be. I did really come away from the first meeting thinking, there's something much more significant in this than a single one-off documentary. But I knew there, there was someone who was really, really wishing and wanting to tell their story. And I just happened to be the right place at the right time. I know his point of view that he feels he was wrong and he was given rough justice and maybe he made some mistakes. You know, I, I didn't really get a sense that he took those mistakes on board. Does he understand what he did? I think that, as one of the contributors said, Sean Quinn chooses not to understand. I think that he's taken a conscious decision in some regards that um, he um, he knows exactly what he did, whether he's prepared to actually confront that, but would rather find a reason to explain what he did uh, is really what he spends his time doing. And I think that because it's so complicated and because there are so many characters involved and because there's so many different elements of the story, it's very easy for him to find their others are to blame and others contributed. Uh, you know, it isn't just that he went down the rabbit hole, having been incredibly well uh, you know, he had shares in Ryanair, he had share, shares in lots of blue chip companies, but he he, he got rid of all those and put all that bet on uh, Anglo-Irish and, you know, he sees that decision and he understands what he did. And it wasn't the first time that he had done it. That's the key thing. You know, he had done it several years before and almost lost Quinn Direct at that point. If it wasn't for political, somebody in politics coming to help him, he could have gone into administration, but he hadn't learned the lesson of that and instead had gone down the rabbit hole again and this time with a much, much greater bet. So, you know, I think a long way of saying that he does understand what he did, 
but he finds people to blame for everything that happened as a result of his bet. Sean Quinn invested everything that had been generated into a bet on Anglo-Irish Bank. The 2008 crash spelled disaster for Quinn. The children had thought they were multi-millionaires, if not more, and then the father gave it all away on them. Simon, I might bring you in here now, actually, because for people who haven't seen the documentary yet, uh, you know, or it's been a few years since they heard the story, like how did Sean Quinn become so indebted to Anglo and how did his fortunes unravel? If you could summarise it, I know that's a tall order. Well, I think he, to understand how he lost his fortune, you kind of have to also understand a little bit about how he created it. And he, his, the story of his rise is extraordinary. He created this industrial conglomerate in what is an economic backwater in the border region, creating mass employment from from really from starting from scratch, from digging gravel out of the family farm and realising out of that there are products that would be in demand and each product kind of pushed him into new areas. So he went from gravel to cement to billing materials to roof tiles uh, to radiators uh, and then eventually into insurance. And over a prolonged period of four decades, he built up this multi billion euro business. It was extraordinary business, not just based in Ireland, but expanded into other countries. So he had this huge wealth created in the order of about 5 billion euro at peak. Uh, but he got into businesses that he really didn't understand. And uh, he got into insurance and he got into a financial bet. And I think that long period of success created a kind of a reckless sense of invincibility. Um, he had been so successful at taking on the establishment at breaking monopolies, like in the cement business, which is one of the hardest businesses in Ireland or anywhere. And he was so successful at that, I think he thought that he could really turn that success to anything. And as Trevor alluded, there was a moment at uh, the turn of the millennium when he uh, almost lost it all because of really the blind spots uh, in his knowledge, which is he just didn't understand financial markets. He had invested in dot-com stocks and that left a hole in his insurance company. And then fast forward to 2008, he took this massive gamble on Anglo-Irish Bank. It was all eggs in one basket in terms of the risk he was taking on. And he invested in Anglo-Irish Bank, not in shares, but in this highly leveraged uh, form of derivative around shares called the Contracts for Difference, which is basically a way of like borrowing and leveraging up a small bet into a big bet. If the shares rise, you will make a lot of money. And they, he was making a lot of money and sitting on a very, very tidy profit. But as the market turned, he really didn't understand the hole he was in. And remarkably, when he disclosed to the bank and these CFDs, the, the benefits of them is you keep it secret. You can invest without telling anyone what you have, what kind of interest you've taken in, in the bank. And when it came to us, uh, he, in a, in a kind of showdown meeting, with the chief executive, David Drum, and chairman of Anglo-Irish Bank, Sean Fitzpatrick, he disclosed that he owned about a quarter of the bank. He had a, he had a stake that was equal to a quarter of the bank, which is an extraordinary level of exposure to one stock. And when the market turned on Anglo-Irish Bank, he was left highly exposed. And when the margin calls came on the back of those CFDs, he had to meet those margin calls. And there were substantial sums of money demanded from him. And in the end, it was cash he just didn't have. And he had to borrow significantly from Anglo-Irish Bank uh, to get uh, to get out of that hole, to meet those margin calls. And in a way, uh, it was kind of a 
a relationship of mutual destruction between Anglo-Irish Bank and Sean Quinn. Anglo needed Sean Quinn to survive and Sean Quinn needed Anglo to bail him out. And in the end, when the bank collapsed, it was going to leave Sean Quinn heavily exposed. And in the end, he had a loss of about three million. And on top of that, those weren't just his only borrowings. He had borrowed another billion or so from bondholders to support his Quinn group of businesses. And then we discovered that he had a significant hole in his insurance company, about a billion euro hole. So all told, he was facing, he was about five billion euro underwater on all of these investments. And Trevor, your documentary sets out very well that Sean Quinn felt like he'd been wronged by Anglo, he'd been wronged by the government. And then later on, he felt like he'd been wronged by his closest allies who who ousted him. So basically, you might just outline for people who haven't seen it yet, the, the group that came to be the new owners of Quinn. 2011, Alan Jukes takes over the companies on behalf of the bank and the bondholders. And then from there to 2014, there was a, a, a series of violent attacks and vandalism, all in an attempt to disrupt the businesses and warn off anybody from buying them. It was a very simple strategy that those behind those attacks that came down from, you know, they called themselves the Molly Maguires, as a detail in the, in, in, in the book. They formed a gang and they carried out a number of very strategic attacks on telegraph poles and electrical substations, which were all to make the, uh, the receiver, a guy called Paul O'Brien, who was there trying to run the business, all to make life absolutely hell for him, hell for him on a daily basis but prevent them from breaking up and selling off the group, which, of course, the bondholders wanted to do. And that attack was basically the last straw for the bondholders. There was nowhere they could go, and they decided to cut a deal with a with a management. They carved this deal with a, with former Quinn executives uh, who formed themselves under Quinn Business Retention Company. And really, Quinn was sitting outside that. He, he was bankrupt. He couldn't be part of it, but he, he was absolutely involved. He was key to the whole thing. And this, this group, if you like, was like a Trojan horse that was going to go back in, take as much of the business as they could, and then Sean Quinn would come back, which is exactly what happened in December 2014 and what the locals described as the second coming of Sean Quinn. He walked in with a tray of drinks of Budweiser and whiskey and, you know, everybody was on the stairs clapping him and the hero was back. And everyone thought, well, job done. Quinn's back. He'll now know how to build this again. He'll now know he has to behave differently. But it, it all fell apart. He then blamed his former executives, Liam McCaffrey's, Kevin Lunny's, the Dara Rileys. He said, you are not following my orders. And of course they couldn't because they were caught between a rock and a hard place. They had Quinn angry that he wasn't being given his place. And the bondholders saying, guys, we've got a deal. Get on, run these companies, turn profit, keep the jobs and uh, keep going. So, you know, Quinn fell foul and uh, was back out again. So, you know, that's kind of the background that led then to a series of violent attacks, obviously culminating in September 2019 on the attack on Kevin Lunny that we all know about, the horrific attack in which Kevin Lunny was kidnapped and uh, uh, brutally assaulted. We'll have more from Simon and Trevor after this short break. One of the most striking lines in the documentary actually doesn't come from Sean Quinn, if you mind me saying. It's from Alan Jukes when he was discussing the vigilantism that erupted after the Quinn group was taken over and then, you know, later on. And he said, border people. They are living in in communities that have, you know, a long history of violence of different kinds and they'd more easily turn to it than anybody else will. 
Now, you yourself, you're a Fermanagh man. What did you make of that statement? Um, I knew at the time when I interviewed Alan Jukes that I knew when I'm walking away from that, that was an incredibly controversial statement to make. But I do remember the interview with Alan Jukes. He was incredibly relaxed and comfortable talking about these things. And he was very open and, and, and willing to engage on every you know, every beat of the story and the engagement that he'd had with Sean Quinn, you know, so I, I kind of came away that he was feeling, I don't know whether it was, he was ready to go on holidays or whatever it was, but he was, he was kind of very in a relaxed mood and, uh, you know, for whatever reason, but, but I remember coming away thinking that's going to go down like a lead balloon along the border. That's going to really confirm the bias and prejudice of people who don't understand what it's like on the border, who don't know what life is like, who don't know what it was like before Sean Quinn came along. And, you know, there's sort of sweeping statement about whether they be beast, specials, or Provo. So he wasn't you know, talking about one section of the community. He just gathered them all under the one blanket statement. So I think that you'll appreciate even since that's been broadcast that a lot of people say, well, so Alan Jukes was the guy that sent the hundred strong security team north of the border to seize control of Sean Quinn's businesses. And, you know, and Sean Quinn said in the documentary last night that that was the inciting incident that created the 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 created the the environment in which violence began on the border, you know, because they felt that once again, you know, a bit like British soldiers in the 70s and 80s, here's an outside force coming in and taking control of their land, their property, all of that. So, you know, Sean Quinn absolutely pinpoints as that as a sense in the inciting incident. But I think you can hear already and see on social media the questions that are being raised about, you know, if Alan Jukes really held those views, was he really the right man to try to cut a deal with Sean Quinn in the immediate aftermath when he was trying to get those billions of euros back for the Irish taxpayer? Was he really the man that was going to be put in a room and was going to reach? I mean, I think that the two of them were very different men. You couldn't have found more different individuals, really, um, in terms of their backgrounds, in terms of their their careers and their, you know, the roles that they played in society. Putting the two of them in the room was never really going to work. And I think that that comment in some ways solidifies in people's minds that really Sean Quinn got a bad deal as a result of the attitudes that were displayed by Alan Jukes and others. Yeah, I think the most forgiving way you can read that statement is that he meant that because of years of the troubles and sort of dissidents and paramilitary action and that kind of thing, that if you were inclined to turn to violence, you'd know who to talk to. And I suppose that's where maybe Dublin Jimmy comes in. Cyril McGuinness, the main suspect for organising the attack on Kevin Lunny. The IRA member turned dissident Republican and gangster, had over 50 criminal convictions. Was his reputation as notorious as we're led to believe? Yeah, well, in the book, when I ask questions of contacts and RUC, former RUC officers, they confirmed that actually back in the early 90s, in particular when Dublin Jimmy was living in and around Rossleigh and South Romana, they, 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 they seen him basically as, as, as public enemy number one. They feared for their lives when Dublin Jimmy or Cyril McGuinness was around and they believed that he was absolutely, if not leading the IRA unit in that area, was a very significant player. There is a former MI5 uh, officer called Annie McMahon, who's written a book, and she talks about McGuinness being the key suspect in the Docton's bomb in 1996. He'd gone to jail in Belgium, actually, for being the ringleader of a massive uh, um, plant hire theft operation where he's moving uh, plant from 
different jurisdictions and, and, and making huge amounts of money and stealing plant. Uh, so he, he, when he came back to the border in 2013, now bear in mind the violence had already been going on on the border for over 18 months that time. When he came back on the 2013, um, I, I, I'm not sure whether how much he was actually involved in the first phase of attacks that led to Sean Quinn and Liam McCaffrey and others all coming back into the business. But uh, there was significant speculation that he was very much involved in the attacks then on the Quinn executives that began after Quinn, Sean Quinn left the business again. So, yeah, I mean, an incredible character, an incredible end. Like, you couldn't write it. When Derbyshire police burst into the house where he was staying at half eight this morning, the 53-year-old fell ill collapsed and died. Whenever police go to raid the home and then he, he smokes a couple of cigarettes, he sits down, he drinks a coffee and keels over and dies with a heart attack. Um, I mean, and there goes, you know, the testimony of that individual. Now, we still don't know exactly what was gleaned from the phones and the, and, and the laptops and everything that were seized on that day and that attack and whether that actually would lead to whoever had commissioned Sarah McInnes, because I absolutely do believe that Sarah McInnes was not involved in the attack on Kevin Lunny for the good of his health. He was not involved in it just to try to, 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 to do it for some other strategic interest. Somebody somewhere had asked Dublin Jimmy to get involved in that attack or to organise or orchestrate the attack. And, you know, maybe only those who are actually investigating him and have, have, have access to his phones will know who exactly he was talking to and liaison with. Yeah, I mean, that attack was absolutely horrific. The attack in 2019 when Kevin Lunny was abducted and tortured and mutilated in a trailer and left for, for dead. He nearly died. You know, watching the documentary, I felt that Sean Quinn showed a real lack of compassion for what Kevin Lunny went through. I mean, is that a fair assessment? I think at times Sean Quinn wildly oscillates uh, on Kevin Lunny. Um, and uh, in one moment, you know, he can say, well, listen, you know, as he does say in the documentary, this was a brutal attack. Nobody should treat, no human should treat a fellow human like that. Uh, but then he caveats that to say, but listen, you know, I don't have any sympathy for Kevin Lunny. Uh, you know, and I think with Kevin Lunny, you know, you've got, you've got an executive team of Dara O'Reilly, Liam McCaffrey and Kevin Lunny. I think if you saw in the evidence of, of the archive that was in the series, you know, there was a special bond between Kevin Lunny and, and, and Sean Quinn. Kevin Lunny was on the private plane and went to Moscow and went to Hyderabad and was always by his side, in some ways like a second son to Sean Quinn. And I think then when Kevin Lunny sided with the bondholders, which he did, along with Liam and Dara, um, they, they just felt that Sean Quinn, they couldn't work with him anymore and he hadn't read the room and he hadn't understood that everything had changed dramatically when he made that second coming, you know, and, and, and that the, the tables had turned. He was no longer in control of this. And I think that when Kevin Lunny uh, sided with the, the bondholders, Sean Quinn saw that again as a breach of loyalty and that... Uh, um, and I think that that's what plays on his mind. He feels that these people that should be, should be blindly loyal to him because look what he did for them. And of course, the, that attack really brought out the community revulsion for the violence. And there was the sermon by Father Oliver O'Reilly in Ballyconnell. This well-planned and well-organised abduction could only have happened when some person with ulterior motives agreed to pay these criminals a sum of money and gave instruction on what he required to be done to an unsuspecting victim. Sean and his wife Patricia both felt that that sermon placed the blame for the attack at Sean Quinn's door and he strenuously denies it. What did you make of the denial? 
as he said in the documentary last night, I thought it was very interesting when he said, you know, had I anything to do with it? No, but, you know, was it my rhetoric? Was it my anger? Was it that led? Maybe. And I think that's as far as Sean Quinn will allow himself to go. But no remorse for that. He sees it, as he said at the start, you know, he's, he believes he's telling the truth. He believes he is the only one telling the truth about what happened. And, and, and as I said, you know, I've, you know he, he, he will stand over his truth, his version of events. Simon, the truth, it's, it's so hotly contested, but it's really been laid out over the years. And you've been following this story for such a long time. What did we learn from the documentary that we didn't previously know? Well, I think what the documentary brings to the whole story and Trevor's done a great act of service to journalism and to the public record by moving the record forward so much and trying to understand this story. And I think you can really only understand the rise and fall of Sean Quinn and all the fallout from that by understanding Quinn himself. And I think this is a visceral portrait of the businessman. And I think you could only paint that portrait in the way that Trevor has uh, by spending long periods of time with the man. Um, I mean, I think, and just to caveat this, I'm a contributor to the programme. I was quite happy to contribute, given my understanding of what happened with Sean Quinn's relationship with Anglo-Irish Bank. But I think what the documentary does, it pulls the threads together in this really complex, multifaceted, multi-chapter story that covers everything from building materials, to banking, to finance, to politics, to the courts, to crime. Uh, it just pulls it all together in a, in a compelling way that we'd never seen before and it gives us a much greater understanding of what happened. I think what it shows uh, very viscerally is that Sean Quinn's flaws and the flaws are that his there's an unwillingness to acknowledge the full consequences of his own actions and that's the great that's the great flaw of the man, I think. I characterized it today in his piece I wrote for the paper as a classic tale of an unstoppable force meeting an immovable object. And when Quinn was that unstoppable force building his business that made him so successful, it put him in a situation where he would he was he, he really was going to be very successful at what he did. But the problem was it became he met that unmovable object uh, when he got into a business that really there were rules applying. And, you know, the picture that's painted of Sean Quinn in this is that this man who's a chieftain who believes his, his own hype, his own reputation and believes people do, must do what he says and that rules aren't for him. What we found was that someone who doesn't see risks and he didn't see risks in building his business, that 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 person, there's no place for that person in, in a business where they're, the risk is is all important, which is insurance and banking. And I think the fact that he won't accept responsibility for his actions is really sums up this, what, what was kind of like a Greek tragedy. You know, you have this figure who admits these mistakes without accepting responsibility for those most mistakes. And it's just a remarkable insight into the man from spending time with him. And you've seen in the documentary, you know, Quinn crying on camera at the end, but a man who's showing no remorse. And I think he's, what this documentary shows in a, in a, in a very new way is that this is a haunted man who will really never get over what happened to him and will always look for others to blame. And as he says himself, he got rough, rough justice. But at the end of the day, people feel hard to have sympathy for the guy because of the losses were his own making. Uh, I'm always going, I always go back to the statement made by Miss uh, Justice Elizabeth Dunn when she jailed Sean Quinn for contempt of court in the family's actions 
to put assets beyond the reach of the bank. And she said he only has himself to blame. And that's really what I take away from this whole really sad tragedy around the rise and fall of this man is that he has only himself to blame for what happened to him. Yeah, and I think he, you know, the narrative we tell ourselves is often very different to what the the overall picture is when it's laid out. And and his and his supporters in the community will say the same thing that well, sure they were all at it. Why him? Why go after the good guy? Essentially, the good guy. I mean, did he get rough justice in that sense? When you think about all the the, the people who gambled money and got us into the situation we we were in. I kind of chuckle sometimes when I hear people say, "Oh, Sean Quinn's been made a scapegoat." The number of people I've heard claim that they are themselves the scapegoat or the fall guy for this whole thing. There's a whole list of bankers who'd see themselves as fall guys and scapegoats and this whole thing. I suppose it's a running thread through the financial crisis and crash that there's a lack of people taking individual responsibility for their actions. You hear it a lot. Essentially, at the heart of this is a gamble that went very badly wrong. And even the level of delusion to think that you can get out of that hole if as Sean Quinn thought he could at one point, if the bank could just give me another 650 million euro and give me you know, the guts of 10 years, I'll be able to get their money back. Nobody is going to agree to that proposition because in reality, this is a man who's gambled so much more than that and just it was never going to happen. So that mix, as one contributor said in the programme, that mix of delusion and defiance, I think kind of sums up Sean Quinn very, very well. And I, I don't think he is a scapegoat in this whole story at all. Trevor. In many ways, the real victims of all of this are the people of the border, um, the people who live in Cavan and Monaghan and Fermanagh, that um, they've been traumatised by this as well. This has, been, this has been a presence in their lives right through from the St. Patrick's Day crash of 2008 when the country started to, to, to come to terms with the financial global collapse and then to realise that their man, their, this, this character, this mythical character, this titan was in danger of going under. Can you imagine, you know, when you've got a house where you've got the mother and father and, and, and the children all employed in, in Quinn factories? They've been living under, living in instability for all that time with constant rumors that, you know, the businesses are going bad and, you know, they're going to be shut down and CRH is going to come back and buy the cement factory and shut it down. And, you know, and, and, and of course, it, governments in Dublin or Belfast or London are going to do nothing to save them. So I do think that, that there's been a trauma inflicted on that border community, there's no doubt. And I think also the, the question around scapegoating and Sean Quinn, you've got to remember that, you know, for generations there was, there was nothing there on the cavern from Anna border. There was nothing, there was no jobs. Because of the ambition and endeavour of people like Sean, people, people didn't have to leave. Couples could stay and raise their families in the community that they themselves had been raised. The real and tangible results of this are that community groups could prosper, spin-off businesses were created, football clubs could field an extra team, scout troops had an extra patrol, schools could stay open or maybe had an extra teacher. That little bit extra mightn't seem like a lot, but when you take it away, the effects are drastic. You know, the greatest export was our young people, the people who left there to go off and work in bars and restaurants in, in Philadelphia or New York or wherever. And then suddenly there was a there wasn't just a viability of jobs, but there was a career. I can understand absolutely, totally the outpouring of support. It really was come from a fear um, that they were looking at the collapse of a man that they thought was just invincible, too big to fail, all those things. And suddenly he was he was flawed. 
And uh, I think that's still felt on the border, despite, you know, that the, the, the allegiances and loyalty have all changed. You know, I don't think Sean Quinn would get 5,000 people in the, uh, on the street of Ballyconnell this Sunday afternoon. He was, ha- he was going to have a rally. But I think that one person who knows that better than anybody else is Sean Quinn. Um, he knows that that support isn't there. And the support that may have been there, that may have been uh, there, gone the day that Kevin Lunny was attacked. But Sean Quinn recognized sitting in his own to be, he says, I know it's changed. You know, I walk down the streets of Darlin and people are crossing the street now. Can you imagine what that must be like for a guy that basically, you know, uh, um, uh, drew all his self-esteem and all everything came for the fact he was creating enjoyment, creating in, in, in employment and, and, and wealth. And suddenly people are crossing the street because they don't want to uh, they don't want to face him. Well, it'll be very interesting to see if that all-consuming determination he has, he ever relinquishes it. You know, he has a nice life, beautiful house. You know, he's a healthy family. So hopefully, he, hopefully for his own mental health, he can let it go and move on. But Trevor, Bernie and Simon Carswell, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Declan Conlon and myself, Aideen Finnegan. In the News will be back on Monday. 